You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. YouTube creator James Hoffman has strong opinions about coffee. He cares, of course, about the flavor of the beans. It should have some clear personality to it. He also has a lot to say about seemingly straightforward details, like water. Mineral content has a really appalling, depressing impact on the cup of coffee that you make. Today, James Hoffman on the best and worst ways to make a cup of coffee. That's coming up later in the show. First, it's my interview with Don and P.D. Clydestrip about Charles Heitzig, the man who taught America to love champagne. Their book is called Champagne Charlie. Don and Petey, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Uh, we're talking champagne, especially the American side of the pond in the 19th century. But before we do that, you, you tell the history of champagne. And you start off with something that was amazing, that was Dom Perignon worked strenuously, your words, to keep bubbles out of his champagne. Bubbles were considered a fault. I did not know that. Yeah, I think uh, there are great myths about Dom Perignon. He invented bubbles. He was the inventor of champagne. Uh, He did no such thing. As you say, he fought strenuously against bubbles. He did everything in his power to eliminate those bubbles. So I thought the method champenoise, you know, champagne, was by definition bubbly. But at the time, you could have a wine from Champagne region that was not bubbly? That's right. The first wines from Champagne were still wines, and they were definitely an effort to emulate the great wines of Burgundy. Hmm. So the wines were not only still, they were a pale red in color. So now we get to Charles Heitzig in the 1850s. Uh, He founded a great Champagne house. He figures, well, What's the greatest untapped market for champagne? The United States, uh, which is probably a fairly big leap of faith because I don't think, given what I know about 1850s in the United States, people really knew much about champagne. Or He, he had to do a, a big sales job to, to make champagne work here in the States, right? A huge sales job. Fortunately, Heidzik was a man far ahead of his time. You know, long before the days of advertising and mass marketing, he was the one who realized that it was important to put a a human face on the product that he was trying to sell. He was an incredible, indefatigable salesman. He attracted people, and he was being invited to all of the main social events of the year. And talking about his champagne, it became so popular that people would go into a bar and order not a bottle of champagne or even a bottle of Charles Heidzik. They just said, bottle of Charles, please. Hmm. He was a hard guy to miss. He had black wavy hair, a mustache, and he sported a goatee. He was also six foot three. And, you know, whenever he showed up, people would just burst into song. There was a song that was written in his honor. And, uh, you know, uh, one can only assume that he probably sang along with them. And that's when he became Champagne Charlie. So he returns to America in the mid-1850s. 
I think you wrote that he was selling 300,000 bottles of champagne a year as a big business. So he owns like half the market, but he was facing problems with his sales agent, right? There were problems. The sales agent was not paying for the champagne that the Heizigs were shipping over to New York. And Heizig ended up having to confront him face-to-face, saying, where's my money? And what year is this now? This would be 1861. Yeah, just uh, as war was beginning. So he's got problems with his uh, distributor. He goes to the South— and then right. things get things get really nasty. <laughs> That's right. It was there that he hoped, you know, he might be able to recuperate some of the money that uh, he had been cheated out of. But no one had any money. What they did have was cotton. And Heidsieck agreed to accept that and try to ship it back to France and sell it there. And so that seemed like, you know, hey, this is something that could work. But it didn't. Because the two ships that Heidsieck ended up uh, loading his cotton onto, got gunned down by Union gunboats. They were sunk, everything went to the bottom of the ocean, and uh, <laughs> Heidsick was sunk in despair. Sunk as well. <laughs> he, yeah, he was sunk as well. Well, he was sunk financially, but it got even worse because he was, I guess, carrying diplomatic pouch, and that got him to all sorts of political problems. That's right. On his last trip from Mobile, to New Orleans. He agreed to carry the diplomatic pouch you mentioned. Well, when he got to New Orleans on that trip, the city had already fallen to Union forces, and Heidsick was told to report to the commanding general, a man named General Benjamin Franklin Butler. Otherwise known as the Beast. The local population there hated his guts. But the people Butler reserved, I think, his greatest hatred for were the French. And when he saw Charles Heidsick and saw the diplomatic pouch, he erupted. Yeah, I mean, the incriminating evidence in that pouch was this letter from the French foreign minister confirming that France was making uniforms for the Confederate army. And when Butler saw that, he saw red and uh, decided, you know, Heidsick should be put on trial as a spy for the Confederacy, and if found guilty, should be hung. So he ends up in this prison on an island in the Delta. So I'm just quoting from you. Alligators would come in and try to get their snouts in through the bars and snap at the prisoners. Charles would pick up rocks and other things and throw them in the gaping jaws of these creatures. This was one of the ways he kept himself amused. (laughs) So (laughs) this doesn't sound like a very fortuitous turn of events. Not at all. It was a a terrible spot. a swamp, essentially, and the food was served was raw. All the meat and everything was raw. There was a, a lot of disease, yellow fever. It was a ghastly place, and Charles himself became very ill. Yeah, he was, uh, according to some reports, near death. And it was during this time that a, a huge letter-writing campaign in his behalf was launched, Uh, his friends writing to Washington saying, look, this man is innocent. He didn't know what the diplomatic pouch was carrying. Eventually, it worked. And the Lincoln administration realized that rather than have an international incident, it would be better just to release Heidsieck and send him home. 
So he goes back to France, and at this point, his house of champagne has gone broke. Yep. Uh, and then in yet another incredible twist of fate, he gets a knock on the door. Uh, a priest is there, and uh, what does he tell Heitzig? I have a, something to show you. I have a map for you. And he opened up the map and began walking his fingers across it, saying, uh, this is yours. This one is also yours. Heidzik was dumbfounded. Finally, it was all explained to him that uh, the brother of the agent who had cheated Heidzik had been appalled and ashamed by what his brother had done. At this point, uh, the brother, Thomas Bayo, left the family business and headed west. Uh, and he began buying up businesses, a lumber mill, a saloon, and the land he bought was in a little, well, mining camp called Denver. Yeah, and the land that Biode had collected was or would be worth a, a huge fortune. I mean, it, a, a third of the city of Denver? Wow, <laughs> you know. That's a lot of land, a lot of money, and a whole lot of guilt. <laughs> so here's a guy who had enormous success. He, he becomes a media darling in the 1850s. Then he ends up in jail in a swamp with alligators. He goes bankrupt. He gets half of Denver, a third of Denver, deeded to him. Um, so did the family business uh, stay in the family after Heisig dies? It did for several generations, uh, like most of the major houses today, it is owned by a larger corporation now. And yet it's maybe one of the few champagne houses where you still feel an incredible attachment to the founder. Yeah, we, we were privileged to be invited for lunch at uh, Champagne Charles Heidzik. And I, I started saying, you know, you know, I once had a, a, a bottle of Heidzik and the woman sitting next to me says, you don't say Heidzik. You can say you ordered a bottle of Charles, but never just Heidzik. <laughs> she was really insulted. Did you actually get served lunch then, or did they ask you to leave? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They let me stay around, but uh, oh, good. you know, I, <laughs> I made that mistake several times, and each time got swatted down. Gone and Petey, the story of Champagne Charlie. Uh, lots of ups and downs, but I guess it ended well. Thank you. Yeah, You're very welcome. Thank you. That was Don and Petey Cladstrup, authors of Champagne Charlie, the Frenchman who taught Americans to love champagne. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions and kitchen mysteries with my co-host Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris. Do you want to take the first call? Yes, I do. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Gwen in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hi, Gwen. How can we help you today? I am calling because I need some advice on how to make a basic lemon sugar cookie recipe more lemony and sweeter. Tell me what's in the current recipe you're making. I cut the recipe in half because I don't like to usually make however many dozens a full recipe will make. With that being said, it calls for a cup of sugar, two and a quarter teaspoons of lemon juice, 
and then a half a tablespoon of lemon zest. What I do with that is just to amplify the sugar and the lemon part, I just add maybe one and a half to two tablespoons of sugar. And then I think I ended up adding like a tablespoon of the lemon juice. The flavor ends up being really great, but the cookies are deflated and they spread. There's some egg in there and some flour and is there leavener as well? There's baking powder and baking soda. Okay. I would really up the lemon flavor through the zest more than the juice because the juice is liquid. A batter can spread because there's too much liquid in there or, or there's too much sugar because sugars tend to make crispier, thinner cookies. What I would do, you probably added extra sugar because you added extra lemon too, so you had to balance the two. But if you just upped the zest... Mix the zest, by the way, with the sugar, the sugar that was in the original recipe, sort of to distribute it more, really up the zest. You could go significantly up. I think you might achieve what you want without having to add more sugar. The other thing is to, of course, perhaps try chilling the dough before you bake it. That might help, too. Now, I'm sure Chris is going to completely disagree. I am. Okay. Dump the lemon juice. Lemon juice doesn't have nearly as much flavor as the zest. Two put the sugar in a food processor, if you have one, and zest the lemon right onto the sugar. What happens when you zest lemon is the oils, which have a lot of flavor, often get lost on the cutting board. So you're giving up about half the flavor of the zest that way. So put the sugar in a small bowl, zest the zest on top of it. Put that in a food processor and process for about a minute. The zest and the sugar obviously gets mixed together and you really optimize the flavor of the lemon in which case you're not going to have to add juice and you're not going to have to add more sugar. I agree with Chris. I just want to throw out one more thing. There's um, a couple of different of those grating tools, the long, thin ones, and there's some that are specifically for zest, and they're really fantastic. It just comes right off the lemon. It's that, fantastic. That's a good point. Sarah's absolutely right. If you get the right, the right size holes and shape, it's so easy to do. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks okay. for calling. All right, Gwen. Thank you so much, both of you, for your expertise. All righty. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Emma Stanton. How can we help you? Well, I don't like garlic, and the reason I don't like garlic because it leaves such a aftertaste. And I was wondering if there's something that you could use in place of garlic. Well, you and I were born with the same genetics about garlic. I can't stand the aftertaste either. So I'll give you three suggestions. Okay. In Italy, they often take whole cloves and they might smash them a little bit and they cook them in, let's say, the oil while they're cooking something and then remove the garlic cloves before serving. Okay. So you get a very nice, gentle, smooth garlic flavor without the aftertaste. Number two, never use a garlic press. Thinly slice cloves and put them in with the oil or whatever and by not crushing the garlic, you also do not get a strong aftertaste. If neither of those work, I would just use shallots. They're not identical to garlic, but you'll get some of that flavor and you're not going to get the strong aftertaste. Sarah? Let me ask you a question. Do you like, and I hate to make gross generalizations because this isn't really true about all Italian food, but do you like Italian food? Some of it. I have on vacation in Italy, and it didn't seem to bother me. I found that the garlic there was not as strong as the garlic in America. 
they don't mince it. They use whole cloves. And if okay. you don't break the garlic down... Yeah, because when you rupture the garlic... You get that enzyme activity and you get the allicin, A-L-L-I-C-I-N, which is released. I think what happens here is that our garlic is sold old. It's not as fresh okay. as it should be. Okay. But just never mince it. Okay. Don't crush it. Okay. Yeah. Just leave it as whole as possible. Now, some people use like a garlic paste. No. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, that's that, 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 that's called a worst-case scenario. That's not going to work out for you at all. Well, the other thing, actually, that works very nicely is taking a whole head of garlic, cutting off the top. Yeah, that's good. Wrapping it in foil, drizzling some olive oil on the cut top of it. So you've just uh-huh. cut off the top quarter of it to expose uh-huh. all the cloves inside, put olive oil, wrap it in the foil, and put it in, say, a 350 oven until, I don't know how long, 45 minutes or so. It should really, really soften. And then you can just turn the whole head upside down and squeeze out the cloves. And they are so sweet uh-huh. And oh. mild and yummy, and then you can just add that to recipes that ask you oh. for garlic. Or you can do the same thing in a super stew. Yeah. Just make sure there's no loose paper on the outside, cut off the top quarter, throw it in the pot. Yeah. Okay. Two hours later, fish it out. And, and then squeeze just... it out. Yeah, yeah. and that's okay. not going to give you that strong aftertaste, yeah. Okay. That's a good idea. Got it. Okay. Emma, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for all your tips. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Take you care. too. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to change the way you cook, just give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is uh, Daniel from Virginia. How are you? Good. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. I think. I think we are. We're doing yes, well. Yes, we're good. How can we help That's you? Good enough for me. <laughs> I um, was calling because I've uh, really over the past year been getting into really um, using whole dried chilies for a variety of reasons for making sauces and you know flavoring stews and also lately making my own chili powder, which I really enjoy. And I've gotten pretty comfortable with using the usual suspects like uh, you know guajillo and uh, ancho and all those, but one particular condiment I really like is chili flake, is crushed red pepper. I can't seem to figure out what ch- dried chilies I should get my hand on if I want to make my own blend of crushed red pepper, something close to what we would normally buy in the stores. Are there particular peppers that I should look for or um, kind of where I should start? Well, if I were going to do this, I've not done it. I would just go find a mix of really interesting peppers. You mentioned wahils, which are my favorite because they're really fruity. Yeah. I find a lot of crushed red peppers you buy in the jar are just about heat, you know, but they're not adding flavor. And then, you know, if you spend time in a place like Oaxaca, for example, it's really not about the heat, it's about the flavor. Arbol chilies, you know, might be interesting. Uh, Calabrian chilies. uh, But I wouldn't imitate what the supermarket has. I go for fruitier, more interesting flavors, and Guajillo would be my number one choice, and you mentioned that already. And I'd mix them up, you know, have two or three different kinds, as you said. Just try them. It's going to be a lot better than what you buy in the store, so you can hardly go wrong with this. I mean, Sarah, what do you think? Right. No, I agree. You're going to have to dry them. I mean, if you start with fresh chilies, I believe that the chili flakes are made either from a mix of all the other chilies or from cayenne. And they're dried chilies, and then they dry them slowly, and then 
grind up the seeds and the chili itself, and that's what you find in those jars. But I agree with Chris. Take chilies that you like anyway, and you could certainly start with your own fresh chilies and dry them very slowly, and a dehydrator would be best. But I don't know, Daniel, do you have one? You know, I have an oven with a convection fan and a pretty nice dehydrator setting that's worked for me in the past. Wow, good for you. Just start with dried chilies. You know, you can get them by mail order. That's what I would do. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, you can buy like 10 different varieties dried already, so. And I have plenty of them. If what I'm hearing is correct, I've just been kind of approaching it the wrong way, and I can kind of get started today sort of playing around with it. So I think that's uh, pretty exciting. Our food editor, Matt Card, he takes dried chilies, he toasts them in a skillet, right, for a few minutes, stems them, gets the seeds out, and then crushes them. But I think toasting okay. the dried chilies would probably be a good idea. I think that might yeah. heighten the flavor. Yeah, too. would bring out more of the flavor. Yeah, great. I'll give it a shot. That sounds great. Thanks, Okay, y'all. and you know what? Daniel, tell us how it goes. I sure will. I'd be happy to do that. Yep. We like Definitely. to hear back. Thank you. Okay. Take Thank care. You. I will. Yes. Okay, bye-bye. He sounded like a man freed. He's walking into the kitchen right now to do this. Yeah. yeah I can do anything I want. We have these callers who are just amazing. They're so impressive. It makes me feel like a complete slouch over here. I mean, I make family dinner, but that's it. <laughs> I bet it's pretty good. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we'll hear from James Hoffman about how to make the ultimate cup of coffee at home. That's here in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. 
I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by James Hoffman. On his popular YouTube channel, Hoffman teaches viewers how to make coffee. James, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me. I've watched you on YouTube. Uh, I love your deep dives, uh, almost insane deep dives into the world of coffee. <laughs> I remember watching you review coffee-making methods. You were talking about drip machines and how to fix drip machines to, to solve some of the obvious problems like the mm. cold water start. And you said, this really threw me, you said, I can taste the cold start in the drip machine. And I'm going like, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty advanced. Well, I think I have to make something very clear. I'm not a naturally gifted taster. I practice hard. I taste a lot. And I think that that's most of it. But I don't think I have some particularly clever palate or unusual gift for it. And I think, you know, I'm very cautious about this. When I'm talking about the taste of coffee, if it is something that only one in a hundred people can really pick out... It doesn't matter, really, in the great scheme of things. I'm interested in kind of everyone's coffee being a little bit better. So those tastes improvements, they have to be meaningful and noticeable to just about anybody. So, okay, so what is it we should be looking for? If you have a great cup of coffee, what is it you're looking for that's not in a bad cup of coffee? Firstly, there's balance. You want... A little bit of everything in terms of acidity, sweetness, a little bitterness, but nothing should be loud or dominant. I think a bad cup of coffee is out of balance most of the time where right. it's too sour or it's too bitter, but a little bit of everything is very lovely. And then 
I would say the other thing is that it should have a little bit of character to it. It might be broadly fruity, it might be broadly chocolatey, but it, you know, there's there's no best flavour, but it should have some clear personality to it, I think. So, you know, I'm standing at a store, I want to buy coffee. Um, help me out, you know, what do I look for? Well, let's start with what you like. What what kind of coffee do you drink? I don't know if we have time to go into this, because I'm very opinionated, <laughs> like asking me how to make an old-fashioned. Um, I, I, I like medium roast. I do not like dark roast. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like a lot of bitterness or acidity. Um, yep. I like depth of character. I like lots of you know chocolate notes. I don't like fruity notes at all. I think they're weird in coffee. Um, but I, I just want that depth of roasted flavor without crossing into bitterness. That's what I want. So coffee should be a nice broad church. Not, nothing is better than anything else. But generally speaking, there might be certain origins that you enjoy more. Uh, places like Brazil or Guatemala or potentially Colombia are kind of producers of very sweet, very approachable coffees. You don't really want to see any oil on the outside of the beans. You don't want to see any kind of uh, words that might give away uh, a darker roast. If you see smoky on the side, run away. If you see kind of any sort of darker caramelized words in there, treacle, those kind of things, run away from those. But beyond that, you're looking for a lot of nut descriptors. If they use hazelnuts, peanuts, those kind of things, that that's that's kind of getting you into that ballpark. Obviously, chocolate, toffee, caramel. I think beyond that, there has to be, unfortunately, a little trial and error in all of this sort of stuff. But roasting coffee consistently is genuinely really, really very difficult. So let's talk about coffee-making methods. Uh, I use French press. I wish someone would make a French press that sounds like a percolator, then I'd be in heaven. <laughs> Here's my method. I, I use a medium to coarse grind. I only let it sit three to four minutes. Your method took 10 to 12 minutes, uh, was much more complex and interesting. So do you want to defend yourself? I will happily defend myself. You know, I, I don't think it's that complicated. What I want from a French press is, is what it's good at, which is really even brewing because it's an infusion brewer. All of the coffee's hanging out with all of the water at the same time. That It's a really technically good way to brew coffee. What I don't like about French press coffee is the last mouthful feeling like I've got a little bit of beach in there. I don't want the sandy, silty, gritty stuff in there. I don't like it. I don't want it in there. So, you know, I would add coffee to water or add water to coffee, sorry. 60 grams per liter. Medium grind. Actually, I like a slightly finer grind than most people do. After four minutes. Yeah, let me stop you there. Yeah. Everybody I've read with about French press, you need a coarse grind. You you definitely said medium grind, mm. and, and why is that? Joe, I, I think it tastes better. I think that if you grind coarse, you'll end up with a slightly weaker cup than you needed to have. And I think by going a little finer, you don't get that harsh bitterness because of the way that the, the sort of infusion brewing works. It's very gentle. But you get a nice, full, rich cup from that slightly lower dose, and I think it tastes great. Good reason. So after three or four minutes, I'm drinking my coffee, mm. but you're not done. Well, I would say after three or four minutes, that coffee is still too hot to drink. And what I would rather do is leave it in the pot. And so after four minutes, I've given that kind of crust a little stir. Anything that's sort of floating around, I'll scoop that off and just throw it down the sink. Why do you let the crust sit there for three or four minutes? Because if you don't stir it in at the beginning, you're not getting an even extraction, right? Well, no, that doesn't seem to be the case. Essentially, this method is is kind of a, a copycat of the way that coffee professionals taste coffee every single day. We'll use just a bowl with ground coffee and hot water, mix it up like a French press, but we'll stir that crust up to four minutes, we'll scoop off anything on top, and then we'll taste the resulting okay. liquid. And the thing that we worked out is that e- even though the grounds are sitting at the bottom of that French press, 
they're not really extracting anymore. They've just kind of gone dormant, so to speak. But if I if I wait two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, a lot of that silty, fine, powdered coffee grounds that are floating around in that liquid, they sink to the bottom. And then I can just pour off the liquid on top that just feels much nicer to drink, is much more enjoyable, and ultimately goes into my cup at kind of the right temperature for drinking. Now, you've said many times that the taste of a cup of coffee is mostly about the water. Mm. And you, you actually said you, you needed filtered water or go out and buy bottled water. But if, if you have hard water, that's going to be a non-starter. Yeah, I, I sort of – I hate the idea of, of recommending bottled water to people. So that's sort of – it's my worst-case scenario solution because no one feels good about it. But the water that you have, the sort of mineral content, has a really – depressing impact on the cup of coffee that you make. And if there's a, a lot of lime scale in there, not only will you scale up all your equipment and that's bad, but the coffee you make will be very bland, very muted. It'll be kind of boring as a result. So relatively soft water makes better tasting coffee. I don't like that that's true, but it is. These days, however, there's, there's more and more options that aren't bottled water. So there's more and more kind of filters for coffee specifically, but it makes such a difference. Uh, you started out as a croupier in a casino, which I just love. Right. Um, and, and then you, as you pointed out, won the World Barista Championship in Tokyo in 2007. Mm. W- what happened in between? I, I sort of had walked out of a job quite literally on a Friday and I sort of, I'll see, I won't see you on Monday. I'm, I'm done. And no one really cared. Uh, and I needed a job very quickly. And, and they were paying weekly to demonstrate coffee machines in a department store. And even though I didn't drink or like coffee, they paid weekly and I had rent coming, so I took the job. Wait, wait, wait. You didn't like coffee? How old were you? Oh, I was like 23. I, I'd never drunk hot drinks. People, uh, you know, really? the first weeks are painful to think about. I would make people coffee and they'd be like, is it supposed to be this bitter? And I'd be like, I have no idea. Honestly, no idea. But do you want to buy one? <laughs> but but I, I, I started to read about coffee. And what got me was the way that coffee is completely intertwined in cultures in different ways all over the world. And I was like, huh, there's something here. Uh, and then I learned I really did like coffee a lot. Hmm. And uh, by 2007, I quit my job, went off to compete in Tokyo. And uh, yeah, the Tokyo experience was wild and wonderful. And I ended up winning the World Barista Championship. And they're a little bit like sommelier competitions. They're a little bit like sort of chefing competitions. They're kind of part dog show. But you make three drinks for each of the four judges. You make them each an espresso, each a cappuccino, and each a non-alcoholic coffee cocktail of some sort. Uh, I think 52 different countries were competing in the world competition in Tokyo the year that I won. And that was an indescribably weird experience where 3,000 people were watching live in the room as you made coffee was just just beyond comprehension to me at that time. But it was amazing. Okay, so, you know, here's the question. With wine, I always think if you spend up to $30 a bottle, it's not much different than $70 or $80 a bottle. Is that also true of coffee? You know, I, I think I obviously have a bias here, but I think coffee has one of the best multiples to go from the cheap to the expensive. Wine, you go from $5 to $500. Right. I think good coffee is, comparatively speaking, extremely affordable, and I think it's cheaper than it should be. Yes, if you start to spend serious money, you're buying into something else. You're buying into kind of an intellectualized experience there where it's meaningful to you about the story of this particular coffee or the experiment behind this particular lot. But from a sheer flavor perspective, you're not getting something better necessarily. You you might be getting something weirder or more unusual or rarer, but not necessarily better. So 
I think good coffee, great coffee is fantastic value for money, unlike great wine, which is harder to argue, you know, that, that a $100 bottle of wine is good value. You know what I mean? But a, a $20 bag of coffee, I think, is great value. You get a lot more liquid out of it. And I think you're drinking some of the best coffee in the world for, for not much more than some of the worst. I think you once tasted coffee made with beans from the about the time I was born in the 50s. <laughs> um, I can't imagine those beans were still tasty, but maybe I'm wrong. There is a, there's a place in Tokyo, and they specialize in sort of treating raw coffee as if it was a fine wine that should be aged. I was taken there uh, and uh, immediately went for the oldest coffee on the menu, which was from Colombia and picked in 1952. They would roast it to order, which is something that's not generally done, and they would grind it and brew it in front of you, and it was with a lot of ceremony. It was very expensive. And they, they placed this very small cup of brewed coffee in front of me, and I was excited because I had no idea what I was going to taste. And I took a sip. And at that point, I was reminded of the fact that the primary reason that we can taste things is to stop us eating things that might kill us. And in that moment, <laughs> every alarm bell went off in my body of like, this is not safe to drink. You know, don't, don't do this. <laughs> so yes, raw coffee should absolutely 100% not be aged. So the wine world, you know, is full of trends, some of them silly. Is there a trend right now in the world of coffee that either just keeps you up at night, makes you so angry? Uh, or is there a trend you think is actually, you know, a really interesting trend? Do you know, I, I think the world of social media has accelerated trends in a whole other way. You know, at the start of the pandemic, the coffee trend was called Delgona coffee or Daigona coffee, which was sort of whipped instant coffee till the point it was a mousse. And this was broadly terrible, but it was kind of fun to make. <laughs> right now, it, it's fresh orange juice with a shot of espresso. That is the, the sort of hot thing. Oh, no. Absolutely. And, and people are, are like, this is no. good. This is actually good. Oh, Lord. But like, part of me is, you know, it's like, you can't do that. But then there's the other part of me, like, people are enjoying coffee. People are going to brew a cup of coffee and they're excited. And, and I, I sort of have to keep that bit in mind the most. But yeah, it, it gets kind of silly really quickly. You know, I suspect, though, you're a lot like me. You have very strong opinions about coffee because you love it. Sure. So you don't have to apologize about people who want to do really dumb things like putting espresso in orange juice. There's there's no way that's a good idea, right? Well, you know, orange, orange juice, it's a little bit of citric acid. That's nice in most things. It's plenty oh, of no. sugar. You're not going to defend this. All I'm saying is the food science behind it isn't terrible. I don't particularly like the idea of coffee and orange juice. I've tried packaged coffee and orange juice and it was terrible but um you know the, I, I could see how someone could like it even if i think it's kind of weird james uh a great pleasure and now you've challenged me to rethink everything i thought i knew about <laughs> making coffee james thank you so much for being on uh, milk street thank you so much Chris. thanks for having me that was youtube creator and coffee expert james hoffman he has a book coming out this august the title is How to Make the Best Coffee at Home. You know, my career has been focused on finding the best method for making a particular dish. And over many years, some have asked how there can be just one best way. Sure, different people have different tastes. So one person's best chocolate chip cookie may be someone else's runner-up. James Hoffman reminds me, however, that there is science and method to cooking. For years, I made what I thought was great French press coffee. When I converted to Hoffman's recipe, I enjoyed a vastly improved cup. 
The takeaway is that the best version of anything is indeed a moving target, but let's all agree that not everything is relative. A bad cup of coffee is still a bad cup of coffee. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, beef chili Colorado tacos. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Another quick travel story from yours truly, which I know you love so much. I do. I love him. So I spent a couple days in L.A. with Javier Cabral. He edits L.A. Taco. He's also a consultant on uh, the Netflix series Taco Chronicles. And he took me around to mostly food carts. And what was so interesting is these are examples of hyper-regional tacos and similar foods from northern Mexico that find an audience, right? Because L.A. has so many people either from those regions or who love that food. And so it can support these very specific styles that, for example, you're not going to see here in Boston. Right. And so the flautas, which is like this foot-long sort of cigar-shaped fried tortilla stuffed with lamb and mole sauce, for example, a shrimp taco, which had sort of a secret recipe to it, which was great. But the one I found really would appeal to almost anyone was a beef chili Colorado taco. It was actually a burrito. And this was at Walter Soto's. It's called El Russo Taqueria. It's a food truck. And, you know, it was simple, straightforward. It didn't have 25 different ingredients. But it was so absolutely stunningly good, perfect execution. So what is a beef chili Colorado burrito or taco? So chili Colorado is simply meat braised with red chilies. And so here we're going to use some New Mexican chilies. That's pretty much what they would use there, Californian or New Mexican chilies. What we're going for here is that kind of earthiness from dried chilies, not so much the heat. Uh, you can substitute with guajillo if you can't find New Mexican. They are a little bit spicier. And first we need to soften those dried chilies because we're going to make this really beautiful chili puree that we're going to cook some boneless chuck roast in. It's combined with a little bit of garlic, oregano, cumin. Those dried chilies are softened. They get pureed. We cook off some of that chuck roast in big chunks to get some browning on it with a little bit of flour to thicken that chili puree just a tiny bit. And then that gets braised all together for a couple of hours on the stovetop. The meat is really tender and moist, shredded. The color is beautiful. The flavor of that chili puree is really the star of this dish. You know, it's got so much flavor, so much earthiness. You really almost don't need anything else to put on top of this. So we're making it as a taco. Top it with just a little bit of cilantro and chopped onion. Really important to use a flour tortilla here, homemade if you do it, or if you can find it at a Mexican market. I think you had it in a very different way. Well, El Russo is famous for the sobaquero, which is the armpit uh, tortilla. I watched his wife actually make it in the food truck. She starts, you know, the masa, but she does it all by hand, and then she starts shaping it, and when it gets a little bigger, like six, seven inches she flips it back and forth on her forearms, mm -hmm. hence the term armpit you know, tortilla, because you basically right. use your arms without a press, and it gets, it's huge. I mean, it looks like this giant, you know, napkin or something, I don't know, round napkin. Um, and then she throws it on a grill quickly to finish them off. So this burrito was big, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, and also not like a burrito that we think of here. There's no rice, there's no, no. you know, fillings in it. It's just the meat inside this almost thin, chewy 
tortilla. Well, he serves lots of other tacos with beef and rice and other things in it. But this one, as you said, is just, it's pure. <laughs> yeah. And also, as you said, the chili's fruity. It's not really spicy. Right. It's just absolutely stunning. So these huge napkin-sized tortillas are filled to bursting. You know, don't wear a suit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> get a large stack of napkins. And it kind of breaks the rule about never eating anything, you know, larger than your head. That's a rule? In my household, it is. <laughs> but anyway, I thought it was absolutely stunning. And it was such a great trip because you learned so much about, you know, styles of tacos and burritos and other things that really don't exist in lots of other parts of the country. So it's Walter Soto's El Russo Taqueria, and it's the Chili Colorado Taco or Burrito. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for Beef Chili Colorado Tacos at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik on the greatest food debates of our time. We'll be back right after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time for Sarah and me to take a few more of your calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Margaret in Vermont. Oh, well, we have to know where in Vermont because Chris yeah, is here. He needs to know. Come on. Give it up. Where, <laughs> oh, where? South Newfane, Vermont. Oh, yeah. Brattleboro. Yeah. You know it? I stop at the Brattleboro Co-op many, many, many times per year. Oh, I'm there all the time. I've probably shoved you aside at some point. I, and the checkout people tell jokes, which is great. Okay, Margaret. Okay, moving forward. How can we help yeah. you today? I have this old recipe of my mother's, I'm guessing it's from the 70s, for celery au gratin, which is something she used to make that I loved. And I've never made it because I'm stymied by its call for grated chateau cheese. Hmm. What in the world is chateau cheese, please? Well, let's back up for a second. Tell me about this, Gretin. Tell me what the dish was like. Oh, it was buttery and delicious and cheesy. You start with the cooked celery, butter, flour, pepper, milk, cheese, and buttered breadcrumbs. Mm. The cheese, was it sharp? Was it full flavor? You know, full I flavor? don't really what? remember because it's been so many years since I've had it. You know, I just remember that it was sort of gooey. There was a company out of Canada that made something called Chateau Cheese that was like Velveeta. Really? It was one of those ones that's a pasteurized cheese product. It's yeah. possible it was that kind of cheese. When I looked it up, I was just finding all of these, you know, Chateau right. brand, right. fancy French cheeses. That's not what she would have used. She only shopped in supermarkets. Sarah's right. You know, it wouldn't have been too fancy or she wouldn't have made it. Yeah, it's the Canadian one. Well, if you want it to be similar to what she made, I think you have to use, what would we say, more of an American cheese kind of thing, which melts mm. well. It's processed it the does. way it is, and it melts, you know, A+. plus. I don't okay. know. And you can get white American okay. cheese so that it's not orange. We'll get the, orange. The, the Swiss cheese they put on everything. Raclette. It melts well. It's got a nice flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you okay. want to make a classy one, use raclette. If you want to make what your mom made, I would say use American <laughs> cheese. And I've got to stop okay. saying classy. It's all good. It is helping me to sort of place it in, you know, the universe of cheeses to use that word because, you know, I'm just trying to think of what my mom would have used. So I'm thinking that I could try the raclette. Yeah, go um, with that. Meltability is key. Okay. Well, from Chateau de Raclette. There you go. Yeah, there we go. All right. (laughs) Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. Best of luck. Thank you so much. I'm going to make it really soon, and I'll let you know how it turns out. Please. We love it when we hear back. I'll tell you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help figuring out dinner, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Alice Taylor. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. How can we help you? I have a question about canning tomatoes. 
I have been using real lemon from the bottle to get the acid back in it with, and also a teaspoon of salt. Can I use fresh lemon juice instead of using the bottled lemon? Will it give me enough acid? Yes, I think so. But if you're canning, you want to make sure you get the pH right. So mm-hmm. you'd want to check with your extension service or whatever Exa- exactly. in the state. Yeah. Yeah. You want to make sure okay. that if the pH is off, you have a problem. I've never had a quart go bad, but I just wondered if I could use fresh. Well, the thing about fresh is lemons differ in their acidity. How much lemon juice are you supposed to add for a quart jar? I don't remember. It's a different, like a tablespoon for a quart and a teaspoon for a pint, something like that. There's a difference. I think you'd probably be But I always use a teaspoon of salt and then I think two tablespoons of lemon juice for a quart. And they're always good and they're always delicious, but I just wondered if I could use fresh lemon rather than the bottled lemon juice. I would check with your extension. All right. Thank For somebody you. who has a fear of canning. So, I just Sarah wakes up every night at 2 in worried, the morning worried about gonna, killing yeah. people through canning. So. <laughs> I would just make sure. This, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it should All work. All right. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank Take you care. very much. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Next up, it's Adam Gopnik. Adam, what's up this week? Well, Chris, I've been exploring what the great food debates of our time are so that I would not merely be indulging in my own frivolous philosophical speculations, but be addressing directly the things that really matter to our listeners. But here's the fascinating thing, Chris. When I started Googling the great food controversies of our time, it turned out not to be what I expected, which is vegetarianism versus meat eating or sustainability versus mass agriculture, all those things that you and I have talked about. That's not what turns up first. Instead, what turns up first are those incredibly trivial things, right? Which chicken wing part is better? Can you fold (laughs) over a piece of pizza or do you have to eat it flat? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Can you put ketchup on a hot dog? Now, (laughs) at first I was sort of shocked, right, by the seeming triviality of these preoccupations. But when you think about it, one of the many, many roles that food plays in our civilization is to teach us to value minute discriminations. We use food to teach ourselves that little things count very big. So when you think about why people would care about questions like if deep dish pizza can even be called pizza, I am a New Yorker, as you know, and therefore whenever I am in Chicago, I find what they call pizza to be this bizarre concoction of um, (laughs) lukewarm tomato sauce and day-old bread. I don't get it. But why then do we care about what happens at dinner? It's the primal place where we learn to make the minute discriminations that give us an aesthetic life. Well, a couple weeks ago, I posted a uh, short video on apple pie. And one of the things I said was, never put cinnamon in your apple pie. 450,000 views later and 500 (laughs) comments, most of them not very positive, I'd have to point out. I realized I'd really struck a culinary chord. You know, I think food and maybe sports are two things people have strong opinions about because they have, especially with food, a firsthand experience, right? 
we have no firsthand experience on Proust, one of your favorite topics, <laughs> but we do about food because we do it every day. Yes, that's another way of understanding. Not that it's foundational to our discriminations, but because there's so little at stake that we can freely express right. our tastes in that way. But my bigger question for you is, why would you not put cinnamon in apple pie? Do we have enough time to discuss? Okay, I'll give you the short version. Please. If you buy good apples that have flavor, ah. what you don't want to do is take one of the strongest spices out there and cover up the subtle flavor of the apple. So uh, Now I will come in with you, and there's somebody yeah. who searches as I, for Stamen's wine saps yeah, at every farmer's market. I completely agree. But exactly this conversation exemplifies exactly what I was talking about. We can invest in the question of cinnamon and apple pie. And when we try and take it apart, dissect it, what are we really arguing about? We're arguing about the disappearance of broad varieties in apples, right? We're really exploring a whole vein of sensibility that we get to explore in very few other aspects of our life, exactly as you said, because we don't always have them in common. Believe me, there's a million things to talk about in Proust, but you have to read Proust first. There are a million things to argue about with apple pies, and everybody enjoys an apple pie. So I'll leave you with a final question, which you have Please. to answer, which is a hot dog a sandwich? Uh, a hot dog is not a sandwich, and it can never have ketchup on it. A slice of pizza is um, obscene when it is rolled over. It should only be eaten flat. And yes, there should always be beans and chili. And don't make deep dish pizza. Uh, don't make it and, and don't sell it. There are reasons why we call Chicago the second city. <laughs> oh, there goes that market. <laughs> Adam, Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for today. You can find this episode and all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn all about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch our television show, and learn about our magazine and our latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. We're on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbub Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.